Welcome to the Vineyard Boise Sunday Message Podcast. You can join us live on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. on Facebook, YouTube, and vineyardboise.org slash live. Subscribe to our message podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And if you'd like to support Vineyard Boise, you can give online at vineyardboise.org slash give. Today's message is brought to you by Pastor Trevor Estes. Enjoy. Let's get into our message. This morning, we are continuing a series that we're doing in Paul's letter to the Galatians. And this first part of Galatians, we're going to be in it for a few weeks. And this first part, we've, we've kind of put a banner over it that is this message called good news. Okay? Good news, which, which is, it's kind of a double meaning because it is good news. And it's also, that's the definition of the word gospel. When you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, that word actually means good news. And so specifically this morning, we're looking at good news, and we're looking at good news because the gospel transforms lives. The gospel changes lives, it transforms lives, and that, that in and of itself is good news. So um, today we're going to be talking about spiritual birth as the beginning point for transformed lives. And so being as how it is Mother's Day, I thought before we get into talking about spiritual birth, we could take a few moments to consider natural birth. Moms, you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> so if you're a mom, here's, here's how we're going to do this. If you are a mom and you have brought a child or children into this world, take a moment to see if you can recall what that experience was like, the actual delivery process. Do you remember? It's <laughs> a dumb question. It's a stupid, stupid male question. Do you remember? Okay. Okay, but I just, wanted to, I just want you to recall it for a moment. And then if you're a father, what do you recall about the birth, uh, the, the delivery of your child or your children? Or perhaps you haven't brought children into the world as a mother or father. In that case, maybe you can take a moment to recall what you've heard about your own delivery, about, about your birth. Maybe your mom was glad to tell you about that. And, uh, and she reminds you maybe on Mother's Day just about what a, she went through to bring you into this world. So, so if you haven't brought children into the world yourself, maybe remember your birth story or that of your siblings. Maybe you're an adoptive parent. Remember, what do you know about the birth of your adopted child? Or, or maybe you have nieces and nephews. What do you know about them? The point is this. Here's some questions to ponder. As you think about this, the birth of this child, did the child come slowly or quickly? In other words, was it one of those long, drawn-out labors that felt like it would never, ever end? Or did the child come rather rapidly with some sort of announcement like, I'm coming right now? Was the experience peaceful? And was it exactly like you'd scripted out in your nine-month plan? (laughs) Or was it chaotic and nothing like you'd envisioned or anticipated? Did your baby come naturally, or did it require some persuasion? Persuasion, it's a nice word. Also, who was in attendance at the birth of your child? Were there professionals involved, and were there many professionals, or just a few? Or were there hardly any people involved at all? Maybe the baby just came, just you and baby. If you've had more than one child, last question, if you've had more than one child, or if if you have siblings of your own, Are the other birth experiences, are they the same or are they different? 
I've been remembering the birth of Andrews and my children. We have two daughters. Uh, the, and I've been remembering the, their birth this, this last week. And it's an experience that Andrea probably remembers more profoundly than I do. Uh, but I can share my experience of their birth. And here's what I can say is that there were some similarities, but there were also some remarkable differences just with two children, both daughters. And yet there was remarkable differences. For our firstborn, her name is Patience. She was born, uh, for, well, first of all, three and a half years of trying to conceive before we ever conceived. So we were waiting for her for a long time before we ever even knew she was coming. But even after her due date was here, her due date came and went without any activity. 11 days later, 11 days later, our doctor uh, decided to apply some persuasion because in, in his words, and I think this is a quote, that baby's only getting bigger. <laughs> so after 11 days, um, we induced labor. But once induced, patients seem to still be tenaciously and stubbornly dragging on the delivery as long as possible. If we could have had a window into what was happening inside, I, I imagine there would have been a, a child just doing this. <laughs> like, I am not coming. But just, and, and at one point, our medical team, we had a medical team that was working with us. They were monitoring the vitals of both Andrea and the baby. At one point, they became very alarmed and concerned that they were, the heart rate was dropping uh, on the baby, and they were concerned for Andrea's health and the baby's health. And, and they were discussing, maybe we need to change course and do a cesarean. And just when we were in the middle of discussing that, and we were exhausted and, and waiting, and Andrea was, was done, the baby came. She was born safely, and she came. Of course, she was whisked off to NICU for the next three days, so we still didn't get to see her, but she came. Paige, on the other hand, Paige is our second born. Uh, with Paige, we were actually here at a wedding uh, out in Heritage Hall. We attended a wedding one evening. This was towards the end of Andrea's, you know, nine months, and we, uh, we got home after the wedding, and we were just relaxing. I was sitting in the living room, and Andrea came out with this kind of strange look on her face and, and said with this sort of surprised detachment, she said, I think my water just broke. I think we should go to the hospital. And so we immediately, you know, got to the hospital as quick as we could, and it was all that we could do. It wasn't a long drive, but it was all that we could do to get the, to the hospital and get up to the labor and delivery floor, floor. Uh, where the nursing staff at the, at the um, station there wanted to start the paperwork. Paige was not interested in paperwork. <laughs> and by proxy, neither was Andrea. And so we skipped the paperwork, went straight to the labor and delivery room where there was a medical team that began making us all sorts of arrangements. The anesthesiologist came in in order to have a discussion with us about our options for pain management. And, uh, and the nursing staff promptly told him, uh, there's no time for that, you have to catch. <laughs> and he looked at me, and he says, he's like, me catch? And he looks at me as if to say, dude, that's not my job. <laughs> and you don't want me to do this, do you? And I looked back at him as if to say, better you than me. This, this all happened non-verbally, it was amazing. And within moments, in this flurry of activity, all of a sudden, there was this blur, and then they were handing me Paige. And it was all incredibly sudden. 
In John chapter 3, Jesus describes the experience of receiving eternal life as being born again, as a spiritual rebirth. He's having a conversation with Nicodemus, and Nicodemus says what, and he says to Jesus, or Jesus says to Nicodemus, he says, he says, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And he's curious about that. And he thinks about the natural birthing process, and he says, do, what are you saying? I have to go back to my mother's womb? And he says, no, you have to be born of the Spirit. And so he introduces this language of being born again of the Spirit, by the Spirit. It's a spiritual birth. So, so you have your natural birth, and then in some cases, there's a spiritual birth, or, a, or a, you might call it a rebirth, but it's a birth of the Spirit. We can compare the two experiences, both natural and spiritual birth. It's actually quite helpful because in the same way, some people's spiritual birth is long and drawn out. For the people around them, for those who love them, it may feel like it will never, ever come. Though you might be desperately hoping for their spiritual birth, praying, waiting, applying persuasion, a little spiritual Pitocin every now and then. And though you might be experiencing labor pains on their behalf or you're seeing what looks to be like labor pains that could produce spiritual new birth in them, it seems like it might just never happen. You might even begin to question and despair. Will this ever happen? Other people's spiritual birth, on the other hand, it happens really rapidly. Sometimes it happens without people even being there. That's my story. If you've heard my story, I was alone in my truck and I had a spiritual rebirth. It comes without help from human attendance in some cases. People are just going about their daily life when they have some sort of encounter with God and a new beginning is birthed in them. Here's the thing. Whether spiritual births come quickly with little warning, or whether they're long and drawn out and accompanied by labor pains, there's something that's consistent that accompanies all. True. Here's the True spiritual birth is accompanied by one thing, change, transformation. There's some of that change is immediate and it is obvious. When, when a person is born again, there are some things that change immediately. Sometimes you can see it on somebody's face. Their whole countenance changes. Sometimes there's, immediate, well, there's always some change that is immediate and obvious. There's other changes that are gradual and more hidden and they take place over a lifetime. Kind of in the same way that when a a baby enters this world, that's a pretty fundamental change. The baby's here. And so the fact that they're here, they're visible, there's new life, it's obvious. But then there's a maturing that takes place over their whole life. People, People mature physically, they grow. Well, there's supernatural change that also happens in someone's life, happens over a lifetime. As we get into Galatians today, we're going to find Paul describing his own spiritual birth story. Paul's spiritual birth pegs the extreme on the dramatic side. Paul's spiritual birth came without warning. It came without uh, assistance from human hands. It, came, it was very surprising, but it was transformative. You know, those, there's those stories, you read them every now and then, I read them every now and then, stories about someone who gives birth not knowing they were pregnant. I mean, I just read one recently where this lady was just, she was having stomach pains, and so she, she went to the ER thinking that, you know, she needed to have something checked out, and she left like 18 hours later with a baby. Paul's spiritual birth was a little bit like that because the people around him were not expecting any sort of spiritual rebirth in him. It was very surprising. As we pick up in Galatians, 
We're going to be in, uh, in chapter 1, verse, we're going to pick up in verse 11. Uh, let me give you a little bit of background for understanding today's passage. First of all, uh, Galatians, this letter that we're in, it's a letter written by Paul to a group of young churches that he had, he had planted. So Paul and Barnabas had traveled, had made this uh, missions trip, and we're going to look at a map here, where they made a, a missions trip through, uh, through this region called Southern Galatia and had begun these churches by preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ for the very first time. And none of them had heard the gospel of Jesus. He was the first person to ever bring it. It wasn't like there was a church on every corner and they were just planting a new church on an unpopulated corner. This is the very first time. So here's a map of their journey. And what you can see is they start, oh, if you look at Syria over here on the right, and there's this uh, town called Syrian Antioch right on the coast. Uh, they basically made their missions trip as kind of an out and back. So the blue line is the, the outward bound. The red line is the return trip. And basically they, they went out and then they doubled back and they revisited all of the places where they had, had gone on the first time. And in that trip... Um, what happened is there were some antagonists who were uh, coming behind them and were upsetting the church that they were preaching, the church they were preaching to. This was already happened just in the first time that they traveled through it, and it's told in the Acts story. So here's the example we looked at last week, Acts 13:42. The following week, almost the entire city turned out to hear them preach the word of the Lord. But when some of the Jews saw the crowds, they were jealous. So they slandered Paul. And they argued against whatever he said. Okay, those two dynamics characterize the opposition that Paul faced when he first came through their towns. And it's now undermining the gospel after he's left. He's now back in Syria and Antioch. But that sort of undermining is still happening. There's opponents who are slandering his character. And they're arguing with his content. If you can remember those two things. That Paul's character was being attacked. And that the, the very essence of his gospel was being questioned and challenged. You'll be able to read the whole letter of Galatians and understand what Paul's doing. At least you'll understand part of what he's responding to. So what Paul did is he wrote a letter back to the churches to combat that opposition because as he stated in that first paragraph that we looked at last week, he's not trying to defend himself. He's not trying to keep a, a congregation for himself and, and, and build a big church that's a, a church to Paul. But he's very concerned about what they believe about the nature of the gospel. Because as he said last week, if you believe in a different gospel than the one he preached, it's actually no longer good news. If you add to the gospel, it's not good news. If you subtract something, if you leave something from the gospel, it's no longer good news. And so what he's contending for is that they, they have to hear the pure gospel and hold on to that. So as we resume, Paul's defending both the authenticity of the gospel that he preached to them and he's responding to accusations, questioning his authority. Let's pick up in 111. He says, For I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preach does not have human origin. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Right away, you can hear that he's on the defensive. He's responding to something. And this is a little bit like hearing one side of a phone conversation. You ever had this experience where you walk into a room where someone else is on the phone and you, at first you're trying to figure out who it is they're talking to and pretty quickly by the nature of what they're saying, you think, oh, I, I think I know who they're talking to. And then you, you figure out, oh, I think what's, I know what's being said on the other side. You're having to piece it together. So it's, it's, there's some interpretation going on. But based on what the person you can hear, based on what they're saying, you can kind of discern what's going on the other side. This is a little bit like that because Paul's having to respond to some things and we have to kind of 
interpret what's being said on the other side. We know that he's responding to some sort of slanderous accusations that maybe they're saying things like this. Perhaps they're saying that Paul's not a genuine apostle. This might look like something like this. You know that, that Paul, he's not one of the original 12 that walked with Jesus for three years. He's some sort of Johnny-come-lately who claims to be an apostle, but he, was, he never was with Jesus during Jesus' earthly life. Who does he think he is? Perhaps they're saying that, you know, that, that Paul... He did meet with the real apostles in Jerusalem, but he didn't get their endorsement. In fact, because he didn't get their endorsement, he went off on to do his own thing. He's rogue. You can't trust what he's saying. You can't trust the nature of his message. So what does Paul do? Well, he offers a proof. He offers a proof of the authenticity of his gospel. And that proof is the radical transformation that happened in his life. Here's, he said, here's the radical transformation that accompanied his spiritual birth. It looks something like this. Verse 13, he says, You've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently, and I tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. Okay, first of all, he says, you remember, you guys have heard the reputation of what I used to be like. You heard about my former life. This is who I was. This is what I was like. In Paul's case, you might think, you know, we, you might think of him as, as like a, a rising young star in the political field. Only in Israel, politics and religion were very intertwined. And so you think about this rising uh, young star who was zealously and passionately contending for the beliefs of his party. And just prior to his spiritual rebirth, he'd been heading north from Jerusalem up to a town called Damascus. And here's what he was carrying with him. He was carrying with him arrest warrants that gave him permission to arrest anybody he found proclaiming the name of Jesus, proclaiming Jesus to be the Messiah. And with that arrest warrant, he could not only arrest them and, and, and beat them, but he could bring them back to Jerusalem as his captives where they could stand trial like Jesus did and like Stephen did. Hear about the, the think about the, the martyrdom of Stephen. Stephen was the very first martyr in the early church following the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. You can find the story in Acts chapter 7. But long story short, after, after, Peter, or after Stephen was martyred, the church in Jerusalem scattered and went throughout the known region. And Paul's response to that was a little bit like, you know if you stamp on, or stomp on a fire and sparks and embers go out everywhere, and then you have to go out and you have to stomp out those embers? That's what happened with the martyrdom of Stephen. When he was crushed, sparks went out everywhere from Jerusalem. People, they left Jerusalem, they fled, but they took the gospel with them. And Paul's trying to, to stamp out those embers before they, before they start new fires about Jesus, wherever they go. So his intention is to bring back men or women back to Jerusalem where they can stand trial, just like Jesus did, like Stephen did. He's determined to cleanse Israel of this heretical nonsense about this Jesus of Nazareth. And so, in fact, when he recounts the same story, and later in the book of Acts, he's recounting the story. This is what he says about himself. He said, in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and I beat those who believed in Jesus. This is a, this, he's a bad guy. When he says, this is what I was like, this is who I was, he was violently opposed to Jesus 
and all of his followers with a zealous righteousness, like it was a political cause that he was wholeheartedly sold out to. That's who he was, okay? But then he had an encounter with God. He had a spiritual birth and something transformed. So we we come to this next paragraph, 115. But, powerful word, but, when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and I returned again to Damascus. Paul here in this account doesn't go into detail about the story of his conversion, what happened on the the Damascus road. You can read about that in Acts chapter nine. It's It's a powerful story. But what he does go into in this account is what he did afterwards. And and because what he's responding to is these accusations having to do with his relationship with the apostles in Jerusalem, he says, you know what? I did not go to Jerusalem immediately. Instead, I went away into Arabia and into Damascus. Let's look at Arabia on a map. Look at this map here. Arabia is there on the the lower right-hand corner. You see it's all there kind of in that yellow. And so from the perspective of where Paul's writing from, he's writing from, uh, from uh, Syrian Antioch, which is up on the northern coast of the Mediterranean Sea. So he's writing about a place that's this vast, undefined desert that's primarily to the west and the south. You see that? It's this big, undefined area. Most of it, from a biblical perspective, is uninhabited. It's this barren wasteland, barren desert. But there is part of Arabia just a small part to the southeast that includes the Sinai Peninsula. So if you look at this next slide, I, I circled this. When he talks about Arabia, it includes this place to the southwest. So in the, it's in this, that place, that little circled place in that Sinai Peninsula that you'll find Mount Horeb, which is also known as Mount Sinai. Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, same thing, just different, different designations depending on which passage you're reading. Melissa Moore, in her study on Galatians, she notes that there's only one other designation in the New Testament of this word Arabia, this, with this description Arabia, and it's actually here in this very same letter. In chapter 4, Paul's going to describe the location of Mount Sinai. He's going to say Mount Sinai in Arabia. So when Paul says he went away into Arabia, there's a good chance that he's going to Mount Sinai because that's the, the things, the stories that have shaped Paul his heroes, the, the superheroes that he grew up with, he didn't grow up idolizing football players or baseball players or gymnasts. He grew up idolizing the, the prophets, the, the people in, his, in the stories that he was, he was told as a child that he studied as an adult. All the Old Testament scriptures and so many of their stories had a powerful encounters with God at Mount Sinai. Here's a few examples. In Exodus 3, Moses is encountered by God and is given a new calling and purpose. Moses, basically Moses has, you know, although in the the Hebrew scriptures, in the Old Testament, we wouldn't use the same language, but he has basically a spiritual rebirth on Mount Sinai at Mount Horeb when he encounters a burning bush and God speaks to him out of this burning bush that's aflame but's not being consumed. And this is the moment of his conversion where he's going about his normal life. No one else is around. No one's helping with this birth, but he has an encounter with God and it completely changes the trajectory of his life. 
He ends up with a new mission, a new purpose. Later in Exodus, in chapter 19, the Israelites first camp at Mount Sinai after God had rescued them and saved them from Egypt. Remember, they were enslaved to Egypt. This order here is really important. After God rescued and saved them from Egypt, here they then, at Mount Sinai, they enter into a covenant with God about how they will now live and how they will carry his name and image. God says, you, I, I've saved you to be my special people. Here's what that looks like. And they enter into this covenant agreement where, they, where God says, this is what it looks like to carry my name in a way in the world that, is, that, that shows me for who I truly am. And then one more example. In 1 Kings 19, Elijah, who is one of the prophets that Paul would have idolized, he had little prophet baseball cards. <laughs> worth a lot of money, I'm sure. 1 Kings 19, Elijah flees to Mount Horeb in disillusionment and despair and takes refuge in a cave there where God speaks to him. You can read that whole story in 1 Kings 19 about how he was, he was disoriented, he was questioning what God was doing and what God was not doing, and he goes away to a place where he knows previously his people have had powerful encounters with God, and there he has a powerful encounter. So here's Paul. He's got this conversion experience. Paul, understand this. Paul's conversion experience, his spiritual birth, is not from, he doesn't go from being irreligious to religious. He's extremely zealously religious. He goes from being religious to being a follower of Jesus. And in that moment, everything was disorienting for him. Everything that he thought he believed, he was, he was questioning. And so he went away to a place where he knew people had had powerful encounters with God. Paul doesn't offer any details of what transpired during his pilgrimage in the Sinai of Arabia. He doesn't tell us what happened when he turned to Damascus. But when he does resume the story, it's three years later. Verse 18, Then after three years, then I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, which is another name for Peter. Then I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, and I remained with him for 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Do you hear how he's on the defense here? He's, he's having to, he's like, he's like, look, I promise you. I, and we're hearing one side of the conversation. So it's not entirely clear what he's being accused of, but he's having to say, hey, my authority doesn't come from humans. I had a life-changing transformation with God, quite apart from anyone else's input which means that the change and the transformation that happened in Paul's life, both the immediate reversal from being a persecutor to being a preacher, there's immediate transformation. The day that Paul was, he was on this road to Damascus and he had immediate transformation that was obviously visible. In fact, it looked like him literally going in the other direction from heading north towards Damascus. He suddenly looped around and went down to Mount Sinai. There's also the more gradual transformation that happened over time in the hiddenness of the wilderness. And then in that time where Paul found himself in Sinai questioning everything, Paul began to change. He began to reinterpret everything that he'd understood. He began taking to God the questions, God, what, what, did you, what, what does all this mean if it doesn't mean what I thought it meant? That transformation was from God. It was not humanly sourced. It was not humanly endorsed. It was not humanly manufactured or manipulated. So Paul tells the story, and then he finishes this part of his spiritual birth story by noting that the change that happened in him was obvious to others, and that the others could tell that it was God's work. Here's how you know that someone has responded to the authentic gospel, is that others can see it, 
and they don't glorify people, they glorify God. Listen to what he says. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I was still unknown in person to the churches in Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said, he who once used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. They glorified God because of me. All of that leaves us with a question. That leaves us with a few questions. Let me share with you a couple of the questions it raises in me. First of all, why was the revelation of Jesus that Paul received on the Damascus Road so transformative? What happened to this zealously religious man who believed in God, who believed in the Old Testament scriptures, what changed in him? What was so powerful that it literally changed, it rewrote the the course of his life? He went from being a persecutor to being a preacher. And if he was already so religious, what was the difference in the gospel that changed him? Why, how was this religious message different than the other religious message that he'd grown up with? What sent him on that pilgrimage to recalibrate everything he'd ever believed or understood? And why does he now claim that there is no other gospel than that of Jesus Christ? Here's what I want to suggest, and this is going to be something that that carries us throughout this whole story. We get to to flesh this out as we go through the the, the, the epistle of Galatians, but it has to do with the very essence of the message. Look at this. Here's two ingredients in every religion. Now, every religion is not going to use the same language. This is the justification and sanctification. This is the language that Christian theologians would use to describe the two significant aspects of the Christian life. So justification, part one, that is God's acceptance of people as righteous in his sight. Or to put it simply, it's good standing. Sanctification is the progress in actual holiness in our lives. It's people being transformed to be more good people, to have right living. Okay? Those two aspects appear in every single religion. If you come from a different religious background, if you grew up hearing uh, a, a different uh, religious story, it's going to deal with those two elements. I'm probably not going to use that same language, sanctification and justification, but, but every religion answers this question. What must I do to have good standing? So how should I live? Every religion is going to tell us how we should live. And, and for the most part, the world religions, they pretty much agree on what it looks like to be a good person. For the most part, there's agreement. And certainly with the Judaism that Paul grew up with, there was great agreement about what it looks like to be a good person. Okay? That's going to appear in every single religion. And, and, and the end result of that is in every religion is then, then you have right standing. So maybe that means you have eternal life. Maybe that means you move on to the next level. But every religion basically says, if you get the good living right, you get the good standing, right? Right living leads to right standing. That's, those two elements are in every religion. The uniqueness of the gospel of Jesus that's different than Judaism, that's different than any world religion. And the reason it's good news and the reason it was so transformative for somebody who was already highly religious is that the gospel of Jesus inverts the order. The uniqueness of the gospel of Jesus is that when someone puts their faith in Jesus, they are given right standing with God as a gift. They're given that based on what Jesus did in his death and resurrection for us. Accepting that in faith is the occasion of spiritual birth. 
of being born again in the Spirit. And then what follows is a transformed life, both immediate and gradual, but now empowered by the Holy Spirit. There's a natural progression of maturing in the spiritual life. So when Paul went away to Mount Sinai in Arabia, again, he was actually following the pattern of Israel. We saw this, that when Israel came to Mount Sinai in Exodus, what was that, 17, 19? When Israel arrived there, they had already been saved. God had already rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. He'd already sovereignly reached down and said, I choose you and I want to be nice to you. I want to extend my favor towards you apart from anything you've done or not done. And if you respond in faith, then you'll be my special people. The people had to respond in faith. For them, it was the whole Passover that we, that we you know, talk about in, in Easter. But God saved them. And then at Mount Sinai, he said, okay, now that you're saved, here's how to live. Every other religion inverts the order. It says, live this way and then I'll save you. That was so radically transformative for Paul. Why do you think Paul had to spend three years having this spiritual recalibration? Because that changes everything. If, if what God offers us is good standing with him and eternal life, apart from anything we've done to earn it, that's, like, that's a gift. That's gift-based righteousness. And that's completely different. It's unearned. It's undeserved. It's actually ill-deserved. That's the message of grace. That God says, I love you and I choose you. And if you respond in faith, I will give you the righteousness of Jesus. You can have right standing apart from anything you've ever done or not done because of what Jesus did. And what happens is then people out of that want to live a different life. We want to live a life of worship that is pleasing to him. We enter into a covenant and God says, this is what it looks like to carry my image. And I'm going to empower that in you through my Holy Spirit. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel that transforms. Any other gospel is not good news. Any other gospel that says, this is what you have to do in order to earn God's favor will never be good news because you can never have assurance. You can never have peace. You can never have joy. If you're here today as a religious person, do you, think, do you think that Paul that was on the Damascus Road, do you think he was a person that we would describe him as, man, that guy's got so much joy, so much peace in him? No, he was very religious. He was very spiritual. But he had no joy. He had no peace. He was zealously doing everything he could to show that he, was, that he, was, that he was in, had good standing with God. And when God arrested him, and put him on this new path, it changed everything. Let me talk to you if you're a, a Christian. Maybe you, you've, you have a, a spiritual birth experience. I asked you to remember natural birth experiences. Can you remember your spiritual birth experience? If you've had one, you can remember it. They, they don't all look the same. Some are more gradual and take place over time. They don't always have a nine-month gestation. Sometimes people's gestation towards spiritual birth, it happens over years. There's things happening, just like, just like when a baby's being formed inside of its mother's womb, there's things happening. There's, there's changes that are happening. There's developments. You go from being a baseball to being a softball, you know? 
In the same way in the spiritual life, there's things happening before someone ever emerges as being spiritually reborn. There's things that are happening inside of them. You can look back and you can see benchmarks, the times where you were questioning the, the path you were on. And then one day, it, it, there, there comes a moment of, of spiritual birth. If you've had that, you know it. Again, I won't, I won't tell you mine, but, but I had moments along the way in my life because I grew up in a Christian church, and, I, and so I grew up hearing the gospel, heard the gospel my whole life, but I never really heard it. Heard the words, I knew the story, but I didn't really hear it. So there was things happening, and there was, there was something that was, that was, that was stirring there was a moment of new birth, and when, and when my birth happened, it didn't happen in a, a church environment because somebody said, would you like to receive Jesus? There's many people, that's their story. My story was I was driving, and I had an encounter with God through creation. I recognized there is a creator, and for the first time, I began talking to my creator for a long time, and God in that moment met me. A little bit like Paul's Damascus Road experience, only I wasn't, it wasn't quite as dramatic. But you know what? The next thing I had to do is I, I literally changed the path I was on. The, the direction my life was going suddenly went a whole new direction. And it was one that I, didn't, I, I couldn't script out. I had to just entrust myself to God. Some of you have had that birth experience, but today you wouldn't describe your life as being characterized by joy and by peace. You know why that is? Because sometimes we, we start off in the right order, but then we reverse it again. We invert it again. Somebody comes along. We're going to see in Galatians. We're going to get into it next week. We're going to see why it is that, what it is that people are saying to them that you have to do in order to have right standing with God. Somewhere along the line, we begin to think, oh, I've got to do something to have right standing. In order to enjoy God's favor, I've got to earn it, and I've got to keep earning it, and I've got to secure it. And we put things on ourselves, and other, things, other people put stuff on us. And it shifts from being this gift-based righteousness into being works-based. And the moment that happens, it's no longer good news. We don't experience it as peace. We don't experience any sort of assurance with God. We don't experience it as joy. It doesn't provoke worship. It may provoke a desire to do the right thing, but it's external. Sometimes we've got to come back to a place where, where we heard God's voice. As I was preparing this week, I, I, I went a couple different directions, and I, I really, you know, sometimes pastors experience this where we've got multiple messages in the same message. I had one of those weeks. I've got like six messages I want to say. But here's one of them, and I, and I feel like I was supposed to share this with you. Some of you, you had a spiritual birth experience. You remembered it's vivid but you no longer have joy. And I think God's calling you back to a place where you last heard God speak. Paul went on this, this pilgrimage to a place where he knew that God had, had encountered people before, and he went back to that place or that practice and allowed God to speak to him. And I just want to invite you, if you're not experiencing joy as a Christian that makes, and, and maybe you look back and you don't see transformation in your life. You see that first transformation, but lately it seems like maybe you're going the wrong direction. I want to invite you to go back to your Mount Horeb, to your Mount Sinai. What does that look like? Maybe it's a place, maybe it's a practice, maybe it's a person. 
But where can you go to, to, to just make space to allow God to speak again? Here's the good news. God is so in love with you. and He has so much favor on you that even if you've drifted from the gospel into something that's works-based and it doesn't produce joy, doesn't produce life change, if you ask God, God, will you show me? Show me what's wrong. Show me, show me why I don't have joy. Show me where I'm trying to earn your favor. Or show me where I've let go. He'll show you. He's faithful to do that. We really don't know what, what God did for Paul in that time that he was in Sinai. We don't know how long he was there. Was it measured in months or years? But he emerges a changed man. A changed man who then changed the world. Some of us need to go back. But the other side of that, and so that's, that's the invitation this morning. And maybe it's, a, it's an invitation throughout this series in Galatians to say, God, would you show me the gospel that I'm, not only the gospel that I said yes to, but the gospel that I'm living out of. Because oftentimes we think that we're living out of the gospel, but what's the fruit of it? Does the fruit look like an angry person like the Apostle Paul? Or does it look like this loving person who was surrendered to Jesus, living his whole life to proclaim and to reflect Jesus? I think for many of us, that's, that's the question for today's passage. Alternatively, though, if, if you don't have, if you've not had a birth experience, a spiritual birth, I want to I invite you to think about that. As you, as you work through the story of Galatians, and I've invited you to, to, to come on this journey with us, as you go on this journey, what, what do you believe? I suspect that if you're here, you're, you're a religious person. But being a religious person or you're open to religion doesn't mean that you've heard the gospel. As from Paul's perspective, there's only one gospel. There's only one message that's actually good news. There's only one message that produces change, that produces transformation, that produces joy, that produces assurance. And that's the invitation. We're going to close today with like this. We, we, um, we're going to have just some time to pray. Uh, with and for one another. And so in a moment, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to close in prayer. And I'm going to invite you, if you'd like prayer this morning, to come up to either side of the, the stage over here by the screens. And we have a ministry team and pastors who would love to come and pray with you. And honestly, you can pray about anything. If, if what's going on in your life has nothing to do with Galatians, but you came this morning and, and you need to bring your life circumstances before God and invite him into those circumstances, we want to pray with you. But if you want a, a spiritual birth and you don't know what that looks like, maybe you don't know if you've ever experienced that, I don't invite you to come up here and we'd love to pray with you. Oftentimes there are other people in attendance when there's a spiritual rebirth. Not always, but oftentimes there are. They're like, we're like spiritual midwives. And we come alongside and we pray with you. And we say, well, this is what it looked like for me. And we can just pray with one another. So I want to invite you to respond to the gospel of Jesus. I'm going to close in prayer. And I'm just going to ask God, God, would you, would you reveal to us, as you revealed to Paul, Jesus, that word that was in, there, in the text twice, it was when, when God was pleased to reveal himself to me, when God gave me a revelation of Jesus Christ. Rev, reveal, revelation. That's what we need. It only comes from the Spirit of God.
N.T. Wright describes it as, un, he uses the word unveil. It's like we're looking at something, but it's hidden. And when God pulls back the veil and we see him as he really is, when we hear the gospel, the true gospel, that is, I have favor for you, and if you accept it in faith, it will change your whole life, your eternal destiny, and your life beginning right now. That's for you. That's for me. That's for us. And it's absolutely assured because it's not based on anything we did. It's based on what he's already done and what he's promised to finish. Church, that is good news. So I'm going to close in prayer. If you're, if you're joining online this morning, uh, you can, there's, depending on which, which platform you're joining on, there's a way that you can respond for prayer. You can say, please pray for me. You can send an email to the, the prayer uh, email address and we'll, we'll contact you and pray with you. And if you're here on campus, I just want to invite you, whatever you need prayer for, including spiritual rebirth, Today's the moment. Maybe, maybe something's been stirring in you for a while. Today's the moment. I want to invite you to come and, and pray with somebody. Let's close our eyes. Lord Jesus, as we embark on this study of the gospel, trying to, to get down to the core of the message, what is the true gospel? What what have we added? What have we left out? What distorts the gospel, inverts the gospel so that it's no longer good news? God, would you reveal that to us? Would you give us uh, wisdom and discernment, the spiritual uh, enlightenment to be able to see ourselves, to see our day, not just to study what happened 2,000 years ago in Galatia, but what that looks like today in our context. as we remember our spiritual birth stories, as we, uh, as we remember what you've done and maybe what we've drifted from, would you call us back to a place, to a practice, to a, uh, a person we've had conversations with? Would you call us back to a pure gospel that produces joy? That we would remember that our life, our spiritual life is built upon what you did through your death and through your resurrection. Because of that, our future, our, our present and our future is absolutely secured. Apart from what's happening in the world, apart from what's happening in the economy, apart from what's happening in anything else, that we are secure in your hand. And God, for those that you're inviting to this spiritual new birth, affirm that. Help us to be uh, faithful midwives, to see what you're doing, to encourage it, and to see you produce new life. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I don't know if we have any words for prayer this morning. If we do, we'll put them up here on the screens. Um, those are things that our, our prayer team just prays and says, God, do you have anything specific you want to to speak out today. So if we do, we'll put those out on the screens. If not, I um, invite you to, to just come up front for prayer. Again, our ministry team and pastors, we'd love to pray with you. Apart from that, have a, a wonderful Mother's Day. And uh, don't forget the stuff going on this week, digging deeper. 
for the If Gathering Monday night, uh, Saturday night, night of worship and feast and, feast and fire. And um, yeah, go make the invisible God visible. Thanks for listening. To respond or receive prayer after the live stream closes, please email prayer at vineyardboise.org. And if possible, include your phone number. We'd love to get in touch with you. Thanks.